Namaste. I'm Reverend Wendy Craig Purcell here at the Unity Center in beautiful San Diego. Thank you so much for subscribing to this channel. Please make sure that you like the video you've just watched and consider making a contribution on our app or on our website. It's really easy to do. And thank you in advance for that support. It does make a difference. So as I've said, we have been exploring together and we are just, this is our sixth week out of seven, taking a look at some of the teachings in Eknath Esawan's book, The Compassionate Universe, The Power of the Individual to Heal the World, to Heal the Environment. And part of what he's done in this book is to take a look at the seven ills of society that Mahatma Gandhi identified. Mahatma Gandhi thought that there were things that we as a human race were ways of being that we were that were harmful to the quality of life on the planet and for our individual well-being. Gandhi said that knowledge without character, that science without humanity, that wealth without work, that commerce without morality, that politics without principles, pleasure without conscience, and worship without self-sacrifice were problematic for us. And that if we could transform those, that we would see and experience a major difference in our world. Gandhi, like other great spiritual teachers, really believed in our individual power to transform our individual power, not only to change ourselves, but by working on ourselves and changing ourselves that we could be about making a better world for everyone. Gandhi said that we should be the change that we wish to see in the world. And those are beautiful words and sometimes they're easy to say, right? And not as easy to do. I'm reminded of a quote from Janice Stanfield. She is a much-loved New Thought um, singer and writer. The line is, I cannot do all the good that the world needs, but the world needs all the good I can do. Isn't that beautiful? Let me repeat that. Simple, but really helpful. I cannot do all the good that the world needs, but the world needs all the good that I can do. And that's really what this little book and what these lessons have been um, pointing us toward. There is good that each of us can do, and that good can make a big, big difference. So pleasure with conscience, what's that about? So we've been flipping these seven ills that Gandhi identified, and we've been looking at them from the positive point of view. So what is pleasure with conscience? It sounds kind of funny, the first time I read it, I'm, hmm, that's, that's, that's odd, especially in a teaching such as unity and science of the mind, where we are very positive-oriented, very optimistic, where we tend to be very visionary and very um, goal-oriented, dream-oriented. But what I realize is this idea of pleasure with conscience doesn't eliminate that. It's about a balance. It's about an awareness. Eknath suggests in the book that many people spend their lives chasing the next great thing. The next great thing that they think is going to give them more pleasure. Yet few ever arrive at the place of genuine contentment 
When we're simply seeking pleasure without conscience, the satisfaction is short-lived. When we're simply seeking pleasure without conscience, the satisfaction is short-lived. The legacy of that is a world in which there seems to be an irresolvable conflict between our happiness and the happiness of others. There are a couple of words and ideas in this this, um, section that really speak to me. The word contentment is one that I am finding is um, very meaningful to me, much more so than, than ever before. To experience contentment, to me that is joy and satisfaction in the present moment, a simple sense of joy and satisfaction, an awareness of the goodness, the, the pleasure, the, um, the wellness in the present moment. Say the word with me, contentment. Contentment. Do you feel that anywhere in your body? When I say the word contentment, I feel it kind of like in my solar plexus. Contentment. When I think of happiness, and I like to be happy, but I think when I think of happiness, it's like a much more surface thing, a much more fleeting thing. But contentment has a richness to it. Pleasure with conscience, I think, leads us into this experience of contentment. The challenge or a challenge for us is that we are multi-layered beings. We are not simply this or that. We're a mixture. There is so much richness and so much complexity within every single one of us. The challenge is we have at least two sides in us. We have that compassionate, loving side that always wants to stretch for the higher and the better and the good, right? I mean, we feel it. We can feel it when, perhaps when there's a certain kind of music that we hear or of a story that is inspiring or some achievement that someone has made or some great demonstration that someone has had of overcoming something. We resonate with that and, and we get in touch with our own sense of that higher self, that compassionate self that self that wants to really do good for all the right reasons. But do you also acknowledge and notice that you have another side in you? Do you? I, I acknowledge that about myself. There are times that I, I, I experience that other side of me and I think, where in the world did that come from? And I don't, and I don't like it. It's not that we push it down and we ignore it. We need to see the fullness of ourselves, right? But is what are we going to try to pay more attention to? What are we going to try to cultivate through practice more? The things that we can practice that help us to be more loving, to be more kind, are the kinds of things that help us to feel pleasure with conscience. The Armenian mystic and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff said that we have many different personalities inside of us and we never know who's going to show up. (laughs) I relate to that. We have many different personalities inside of us and we never know who's going to show up. So we find ourselves in this struggle, the good and the bad, the high road or the low road. They all live within us. They all live within us. But spiritual traditions and spiritual practices tell us that if we focus on 
the good, if we think more about the good, if we speak about the good, that it begins to anchor that in us more solidly. It becomes more real. And the more that we can hold that in our mind, the more that we can embrace that in our heart and in our way of being, the more of it, excuse me, the more of it then we begin to track into our lives. So pleasure with conscience is about experiencing life fully, experiencing life fully for the benefit of all and in balance. Experiencing life fully, consciously, in balance, and for the benefit of all. I came across a story a while back that I knew I would share with you one Sunday. I don't know the origins, the exact origins of the story, and I thought about sharing it on Mother's Day, and I realized I wouldn't be able to get through the story if I were to share it on Mother's Day, but I think I can get through it today. And it speaks to me of this idea of what helps us to understand pleasure with conscience. And it's tied, I think, to the idea of contentment, and it's tied to the idea of enoughness. Say that with me. Enoughness. Enoughness. So I'm going to read the story to you. A woman overheard a mother and daughter saying their goodbyes at the airport. The airplane's departure had been announced, and they were standing near the security gate and giving each other a great big hug. The mother said, I love you, and I wish you enough. And the daughter replied, Mom, our life together has been more than enough. Your love is all I ever needed. I wish you enough too, Mom. They kissed, and then the daughter left to get on the plane. The woman telling the story continued. The mother walked over to the window where I was seated, and I could see that standing there she wanted or needed to cry. I tried not to intrude on her privacy, but she welcomed me in by asking me, did you ever say goodbye to someone knowing it would be forever? Yes, I have, the woman replied, but forgive me for asking, why is this a forever goodbye? I am old, the mother said, and my daughter lives so far away. I have challenges ahead, and the reality is that her next trip back will likely be for my funeral. When you were saying goodbye, I heard you say, I wish you enough. May I ask what that means? The mother began to smile. She said, that's a wish that's been handed down for generations in our family. My parents used to tell it to everyone. When we said, I wish you enough, we were wanting the other person to have a life filled with just enough good things to sustain them. Then turning toward me, she shared the following as if reciting it from memory. I wish you enough sun to keep your attitude bright. I wish you enough rain to appreciate the sun more. I wish you enough happiness to keep your spirit alive. I wish you enough pain so the smallest joys in life will appear much bigger. I wish you enough gain to satisfy your wanting. I wish you enough loss to appreciate all you possess. I wish you enough hellos to get you through the final goodbye. 
Is that not a beautiful sentiment? I don't know if you feel at all choked up, you know, hearing the words, but I certainly do. That concept, I wish you enough. To me, that's what contentment is. To me, that's what's at the heart of, I think, what Gandhi was trying to get us to understand of pleasure with conscience, enough. I wish you enough. I wish you enough. In the book, in the chapter in which Esawan is writing about this idea of pleasure with conscience, he actually outlines, and I'm going to touch upon some of them a little bit more than others, he outlines eight simple practices we can do to help us move into this experience of pleasure with conscience. They're really simple things. By now, if you've been in metaphysics or unity or science of mind for any length of time, you've probably heard it all already in one way or another. It's how the ideas land on us at any particular point in time. It's what we might be dealing with in our life at any particular point in time, where the ideas that maybe we've heard many times before suddenly take hold and root in a way that can become really transformative for us. So I'm going to touch upon these eight ideas that Esawan suggests are a path forward to cultivating more pleasure with conscience in our lives. And as I do, notice if there's one or two, maybe three at the most, that really kind of speak to you. And perhaps those are the one or two, maybe three, that you begin to um, practice a bit more in your life. So the first one that he leads with is a practice he calls passage meditation. Passage meditation. There are many kinds of meditation. Passage meditation is the idea of selecting a passage, usually from some spiritual or sacred text or perhaps a certain prayer, and committing it to memory. Committing it to memory and then using that passage every single day for about 30 minutes, he suggests in the morning as a way to start the day. It could also be beneficial um, at the end of the day or any time that we, can, we choose to fit it in. But committing it to memory and working with it in consciousness, not just saying the words, not just wrote, but really trying to embody them. I did this for a while, and I think I'm going to pick it back up again. My meditation practice changes from time to time. I'll practice in a certain way for months or a couple years, and then I might move and practice something slightly different. And I was reminded as I was working on this lesson that there was a period that my passage meditation was around um, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Close your eyes as I just read these words to you that you've probably heard many times before. And imagine what a day might be like if you were to be practicing passage meditation and really work with this, this prayer uh, for 30 minutes. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. 
O Divine Master, grant that I might not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Just feel into that for a moment, what the practice of, whether it's that prayer or a passage that speaks to you, I suppose the Beatitudes could be beautiful to focus on, but really embodying and working with the, the meaning of those words in meditation. Transformative, right? So passage meditation is one suggested piece that he offers. Uh, second is the use of a mantra throughout the day. A mantra is usually just a word or a very, very short statement or phrase that one might use consistently throughout the day. Maybe when, you know, before you send an email or before you have your meal or when you get in your car and, and you're driving. There's a whole practice of meditation that focuses on giving an individual a specific and unique mantra. But you don't have to go that route. A mantra is simply an uplifting word or statement that is repeated again and again and again and again. A very popular one is Om Namah Shivaya or Om Mani Padmi Om. And where something like that can be so helpful, especially if we are prone to fear or worry or anxiety, being able to have a mantra that we go to again and again when we're feeling worried or when we're feeling off-center or, or anxious can help bring the mind back to more of a place of stability. Back to a place of stability. A third practice that he suggests that can help move us into the, a greater experience of pleasure with conscience or this, what I'm calling contentment and enoughness, is a practice of deliberately slowing down. Deliberately slowing down. Whether it's slowing down our speech, or slowing down our driving, or slowing down our activities, of deliberately slowing down. For me, oftentimes in my meditation, one of the most helpful things I can do is just imagine my mind and everything beginning to move more slowly, slowing down. Mayor Baba, 20th century Sufi mystic, said, a fast mind is sick, a slow mind is sound, a still mind is divine. Teresa of Avila, who is a 16th century Catholic mystic, said or doubted that anyone could make progress on a spiritual path unless they slowed down. A great place to start is out on the freeway. Wouldn't you agree? How many of you are shocked by just how fast we are driving these days? Am I the only one that's noticing it used to be like it's okay to kind of go five miles over the speed limit. It's, I've driven, or my husband and I have driven in Germany on the Autobahn, 
it's saner on that, where there's no speed limit, than where we seem, where we do have them. Slowing down, what's that, what's that about? It's about dialing back the intensity of how we approach everything. We can look to, to science and to medicine and see just how much we're being told the way we are living our lives is damaging us, our health, our physical health, right? So I think that Eknath makes a really good point here. Slow down. The fourth is one-pointed attention. One-pointed attention. We've all been warned about the idea of multitasking, haven't we? Right? One-pointed attention is to stop doing that. It's to... There's a line in, in um, the book that I really like. Let me read the, pa the paragraph, and then I'll share the line I like. Esawan writes, doing more than one thing at a time divides attention and fragments consciousness. Everything we do should be worthy of our full attention. When the mind is one-pointed, it will be secure and free of tension and capable of, of the concentration that is the mark of genius in any field. I was really struck by the sentence, everything we Everything we do should be worthy of our full attention. That really struck me. Everything I do should be worthy of my full attention. You know, in a simple way, I can think of when I have broken something, if, I'm, if I had been giving whatever I was doing full attention, I probably wouldn't have dropped that dish or banged into that thing. If I had been practicing one-pointed attention, I probably wouldn't have almost walked into, you know, a door jam as I'm walking and texting at the same time. Am I the only one that's ever done anything like that? Everything we do should be worthy of our full attention. I don't know how realistic it is for me or any of us to never attempt to multitask or think that we're multitasking. Long ago, I've tried to move away from black or white. It's all or it's nothing. Where I want to live is with this feeling, this idea, everything I do or what I'm doing should be worthy of my full attention, one-pointed concentration. The fifth, and this one is a little confusing to me, but he says that training the senses through eating, training the senses through eating, can really help us with this idea of cultivating pleasure with conscience. And he talks about the difficulty of taming the mind, of training the mind when we try to do it directly, like through concentration or through meditation or even through passage to meditation and mantra and so forth, that sometimes trying to tame the monkey mind and train the mind directly can be really challenging. But he suggests, and he points to some of Gandhi's practices as well, that we can approach it somewhat indirectly by working to train the senses. And in particular, he suggests training the senses of eating, choosing to notice with greater awareness our likes and our dislikes. 
beginning simply to cease choosing foods that don't benefit our health and instead choosing foods that do. He writes, with training, your senses begin to listen to you. With training, your senses begin to listen to you. And when your senses begin to listen to you, to your mind becomes calmer and clearer. Then you always have freedom of choice. If you're reading in the book, you might want to go back to that and grab more of what he has to say about it. The six of the eight is putting others first. Let's take a breath into that for a moment. Putting others first. It's not healthy. He's not suggesting, nor do I think any teacher of consciousness would suggest that that means being a doormat. But putting others first is a way to help us keep in check our own tendencies toward selfishness. And that when we live our lives from more of the framework of what's in me for this, what's in me for it, then what's in it for me, we begin to build a, an energy, a way of being in us that is more at peace, more loving, more kind. He writes, by putting the welfare of those around you first, you will gradually find it natural to focus your energy and creativity into a single sharp beam. Instead of asking, how much will I get? Your only question will be, how much can I contribute to this situation? When we ask, how can I make a difference? Instead of what can I get out of this? It turns us inward to those resources we already possess. We look at life from our own place of value and self-worth. And when we're giving from this fullness of our own inner resources, we find we're less likely to overcare. Overcare or giving until it hurts doesn't really serve anyone. But when our inner storehouse is well stocked, we give from that place of true generosity that empowers, the that empowers both the giver and the receiver. There's something that we feel inside when we do approach situations and people from the place of what in me do I have that could make this situation better or be helpful to this person or this, this situation? It feels good to give, doesn't it? Think about the last time you did something for someone that was completely unexpected. Can you think of that? Doesn't it feel good? This is what it's pointing to here. And then just two more very quickly. The seventh, he says, is to read the mystics. To read the mystics and to contemplate what the mystics have to say. To draw inspiration from writings by and about the world's great spiritual teachers. That, and he suggests the value of this is to lift our vision of humanity. I don't know how it is for you, but I have to work pretty consistently to override what I hear in the news. I choose to remain informed. I choose to, to listen to the news, not overconsume, but I, I want to know what's going on. But we know that the news presents a very distorted, one-sided, what's the expression, what 
bleeds leads, right? So we don't hear a balance of the good news. And what that says to me as sensitive, conscious beings who are trying to stay awake and trying to stay engaged is that we need to also feed our minds with the vision of a higher vision of humanity, of remembering how good the vast majority of people really are and keeping that alive in our minds and our hearts so that then we are better prepared and able to deal with the darkness when we find ourselves in a dark situation. And the last that he suggests, and I almost led with this one because I think it is so very important, he said, spiritual companionship, sangha, being together really does make a difference. Having people who think along the same lines that you do, who value some of the same practices that you value, who hold a vision for our world that you hold of peace and kindness and justice, it's important to have times together, not to isolate ourselves from the other, but to have time together in person to both support and to be supported. I always remember that when Jesus sent his disciples out to share his message, he didn't send them out one by one. He sent them out by twos. And I think he did that because he knew that together they could be stronger in staying true to the message he, I believe, wanted them to impart. I think the same is true for us. I hope when you come here in person or when you choose to gather online that you feel the energy of the community and that the energy of the community itself helps you to keep that light that is true about you shining brighter for yourself, for your loved ones, and in the places where you can make a difference. Namaste.